Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today we hear the music from the 1988 film The Accidental Tourist. Now here's your host Jeff Cummings. Hi everybody. Now we're into 1988 in John Williams' life, and he has just one film score on the docket. But as we'll find out soon, it was still quite a productive year for the maestro. Compared to the music he wrote for his two films in 1987, The Accidental Tourist was a remarkably quieter score. But as far as quieter scores go, John Williams fans mark this as one of their favorites. And joining me on the show is one of those people, Maurizio Casquero. It's great to have you back on the show, Maurizio. Hello, Jeff, and thank you for having me again on the baton. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, you will remember that Maurizio was on the show to discuss the Fury, and he's also the curator of the website, thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com. And since we recorded our last show, Maurizio, you've been very busy interviewing some big names in the industry, Sandy Crescent, Mike Mattesino, and violinist Anna-Sophie Mutter. And speaking of Anne-Sophie Mutter, you got to see her in concert in Vienna with John Williams conducting. So jealous. Yes. Uh, yes. So I talked about the concert with your brother, John Maria, when we talked about the Witches of Eastwick. But what I really want to know from you is the experience of meeting John Williams in person backstage. <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, quite an experience. Um, well, I'll try to avoid sounding too gushing, but you know, since we are talking just a few days after this incredible weekend in Vienna, uh, pardon me and pardon your listeners, listeners could pardon me if sometimes emotion gets in the way. So first I have to thank Anne-Sophie Mutter herself for giving me this opportunity uh, as the invitation to greet her and the maestro uh, came spontaneously from her after we talked uh, for our interview in November. So I felt truly privileged. And so flash forward to last weekend, I went backstage after the Sunday concert and was received by John Williams. Sadly, Anne-Sophie had to rush away to the airport to catch a flight to the United, for the United States. Uh, but I was able really just to say a quick hello to her. But fortunately, uh, John Williams wasn't Russian, and he greeted me and my wife with the kindness and generosity you would expect from him. Uh, he really suggests this aura of respect and reverence, but he's really a sweet man. The sweet man he appears to be in interviews where, where he speaks with gently, with people always smiling. I already had the immense honor of meeting him in Boston three years ago, uh, but the emotion was again almost overwhelming. I introduced myself. I thanked him as profoundly as I could for his music, for traveling to Europe and conduct, uh, to conduct his music, and for what it meant f to me seeing him performing in such a place rich of history. And he thanked me for coming, and he was very smiling, as I was saying. 
I briefly mentioned the research work I'm doing about his career with my website, and after which I presented him the illustration my brother, Jean Maria, did as the logo for the legacy of John Williams. And he was very, very amused to see that because uh, he was appreciating particularly the, the details, and like the scattered piano sheets on the bench, uh, as if he was recognizing uh, his own everyday life. Uh, so he looked sincerely happy to receive it, and basically that was it. I thanked him again before before going out and wished him the best for the safe journey back home. Because, you know, of course you cannot overstay your welcome these occasions. I was very well aware all the time that I was offered a privilege that only a few selected people are given, uh, even just for a few minutes. Uh, sometimes even much more important people than me does, doesn't succeed in meeting John Williams and salute him. So I'll be forever grateful uh, for this chance to answer the mutter and her management and also to John Williams' management. But there is a nice connection to the score we are talking today because the only item I brought to sign for myself was my CD of The Accidental Tourist. Uh, he looked a bit surprised to see that because I guess it's not something that he's often asked to sign. Uh, but he looked at the cover very fondly and I asked him if he remembered the film and he replied, oh yes, I do very well. <laughs> and so this film and score have a very special place in my heart. And I guess from now on, they will have even more. What a wonderful experience. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. My and pleasure. I've still yet to beat John Williams, so I live vicariously through stories like these. <laughs> and I suppose it was fate that you brought your CD for The Accidental Tourist. Yeah, probably so, yes. So I have to tell you that I've seen The Accidental Tourist three mm. times in my life. The first time was in 1992 when I watched it to see Gina Davis's Oscar-winning performance. The second time was around 2000 when I finally sat down to watch it for the score. And then I really immersed myself into it for this episode. And I don't know if the years brought more understanding, but I appreciate this film even more now. And that goes double for the score. Yes, I think this is a film that should be much more remembered nowadays because I considered it a true little classic. It's almost scary to realize that it's more than 30 years old now. But I think the film aged spectacularly well. Uh, and the same goes for the music, which still sounds as fresh and lovely as it did when it was released. In my opinion, the movie reflects an era of American cinema where filmmakers were still given freedom and latitude of expression, even within the limits of a studio production like this, because the film is produced by Warner Brothers. And again, the same can be said for the composers writing film scores back then. A film like this today probably will be a Netflix production like Marriage Story. And probably no major Hollywood studio would go through the hassle of finding money to produce it and release it in theaters. Yes, I have a feeling you're right about that. But streaming services like Netflix still can give movies like this a nice audience, especially an audience that was unaware of the source material. Absolutely, I agree. And in this sense, it is important to remember the source material. The Accidental Tourist, in fact, is adapted 
from the novel by Pulitzer Prize winning author Anne Tyler. I think she's one of the finest American modern writers of the 20th century, and her books frequently tell stories of regular people struggling with day-to-day -day life, and they are always told through a very precise and focused narrative style, full of wit and melancholy, in which the characters are the driving force of the storytelling. The Accidental Tourist is certainly one of the finest examples of her writing style. Lawrence Kasdan directed the film adaptation and co-wrote the screenplay with Frank Galati. Kasdan is a very well-known name to John Williams connoisseurs as he began his career as a protege of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, writing the screenplays for The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Kazan is also a great film director. Uh, before The Accidental Tourist, he directed Body Heat, The Big Chill, and Silverado. Kazan and Galati are very faithful to the novel for The Accidental Tourist, and the film successfully reproduces the bittersweet tone of Tyler's prose through a lean directing style, where the camera work and the overall filmmaking style is always at the service of the three main characters and their emotional journeys. William Hurt plays the role of travel author Macon Leary with this beautifully understated, muted performance, mirroring the character's apparent detachment from life. Kathleen Turner plays Macon's wife Sarah, while Gina Davis performs the role of Muriel Pritchett, the joyful dog trainer who helps Macon out of his emotional cocoon. All the actors are brilliant in their performances and the film owes a lot to all of them and Kazdan paints with delicate touches this story of characters going through understated but very deep feelings. I just want to say that William Hurt was on an incredible streak with The Accidental Tourist being his fourth consecutive great performance in a row. It started in 1985 with his Oscar-winning role in Kiss of a Spider-Woman then in 1986 with Children of a Lesser God, and then in 1987 with Broadcast News. Four very different films, four very different performances. Like John Williams with his scores, William Hurt was a great chameleon with his acting. John Williams was not the first person who wrote music for this film. Kazan asked Bruce Broughton to write the score after Broughton gave Silverado an Oscar-nominated score in 1985. Broughton went far enough into the process as writing and recording music for the film. Um, as historian and Williams expert Jeff Eldridge noted in the liner notes of the Film School monthly CD release of the Accidental Tourist School, Bruce Broughton conducted a scoring session in July 1988, which consisted of adaptation of keyboard music by Johann Sebastian Bach, including excerpts from the English Suite, the Italian Concerto, and the Well-Tempered Clavier. After that session, though, it appeared Broughton and Kazan couldn't agree on a common creative vision, and the composer then departed the project. Uh, it's unknown if Broughton had also written original music, but it's interesting to observe that the Baroque-heavy approach initially chosen was probably an attempt at having a musical accompaniment somewhat detached on an emotional level. 
So perhaps Kasdan wanted music that was emotionally detached, but Browning couldn't find the right tone? Yes, I guess Kasdan wanted a musical score that would reflect the main character's emotional state, avoiding typical Hollywood sentimentality. I can only guess that going for a Baroque influence approach was something that Kasdan wrote on Sadalin very early, but they realized that wasn't working only when they started seeing the film with the music. Again, we can only speculate with the information we have, so it would be very interesting if someone nowadays would ask Broughton or even Kasdan how it went. Unfortunately, this won't be the last time Williams and Broughton cross paths. So when Kasdan decided to reach out to John Williams, the maestro was wrapping up a very busy spring and summer of 1988. And while he was doing his usual summer stint with the Boston Pops, he was asked by the associate conductor, Harry Dixon, to write a fanfare for Michael Dukakis, who was set to be introduced as the Democratic nominee for U.S. president. Dixon said it as a joke, but Williams was a big Dukakis fan and set out to write a five-minute piece that had its one and only performance at the 1988 Democratic Convention.
this would be the first time his music entered the real-life world of politics, but it would not be the last time. Around then, he had also been commissioned by NBC to write yet another fanfare for the Olympics, though this one would only be heard on NBC. This one is called The Olympic Spirit, and it was recorded in late summer 1988. This is probably the least known of his Olympic themes, mostly because it was only used for NBC's coverage of the 1988 Olympics. But it stands up very well. It gave Williams the chance to write a big, brassy piece before settling in for the quieter drama of The Accidental Tourist. Yes, uh, he also reprogrammed it in, uh, sometimes in recent years in his concerts. And a good thing to notice is also that those occasions to write brass-laden ceremonial pieces for various public events were growing steadily thanks to his activity as the Boston Pops music director. That post gave Williams an even wider public recognition. Back in those days, the sound of John Williams was of course immediately recognizable thanks to the success of the films he worked on. But he was also a frequent presence on television in the United States with the Boston Pops with the airings on PBS of many evening at Pops shows. Exactly. So he was in the public eye more than any film composer of the time. And it seems like fate was guiding Williams toward this project too. I remember attending a concert where he was the conductor about to play a suite of music from The Accidental Tourist. Oh, yeah. And he talked about reading the novel when it came out in 1985. He said he enjoyed the book so much that when he heard it was being made into a film, he asked his agent to put him into consideration for composing the music. But Kasdan wanted Broughton, and when that didn't turn out well, Williams was probably at the top of the list as a replacement. I do wonder, though, if Kasdan asked John Barry to step in, too. Barry wrote the music for Body Heat, which was Kasdan's first film as a director, and might have done a great job with this film. Sure. I guess uh, several top-name composers were considered for the film, including John Barry. 
Well, as much as I love his music, I think his style would probably have been too sentimental for the film. Back then, he was really in the success of his large score for Out of Africa, and that became a sort of template for drama scoring in Hollywood for many years. But I don't think that would have fit The Accidental Tourist. It's interesting you mention Barry because in those years, John Williams was in search of a new interesting projects that could become vehicles for a wider variety of musical expression, as Barry did a few years before him, when he was trying to avoid anything that could sound like James Bond. So, The Accidental Tourist offered Williams the chance to return to delicate, character-driven human drama, which he explored more recently in The River in 1984, and back in the 1970s with director Martin Ritt. It's certainly clear that Williams found a great inspiration in The Accidental Tourist, which is one of the most delicate and heartfelt small score of his entire career. And we'll see why now. Williams supports and enhances the whole gamut of emotions at the core of the story throughout the entire score. The film is judiciously spotted, with music cues totaling a tad more than 30 minutes in the overall 121 minutes of the film. Even this mere numerical element is an important indicator of the approach chosen by the director and the composer. The film doesn't need the music at every turn to sustain storytelling and emotions, but it becomes the essential ingredient whenever what we see on screen is not enough to get into the core of the drama. What is going to stand out in the score is Williams avoiding a leitmotif-centered approach, but instead employing a theme and variation kind of style. The film is accompanied by a single overarching theme that Williams uses in different guises throughout the film. At first, it might seem repetitive, but it matures as we get closer to the final shot of the film. And this approach that you talk about is similar to what he did for Space Camp, writing material for the mood of the film instead of the individual characters. Yes. When I listen to this score, especially when adding in the visuals, I feel that he is writing music to portray loneliness, and it's haunting when he puts it in the piano. Yes, the piano is used as the main solo instrument in several sequences, in concertante-like fashion and it becomes the voice of the film associated with the main character. But the score features also lovely passages for English horn and flute, two instruments frequently used by Williams to depict ideas of love and longing. Also interesting is the use of some very delicate electronic textures, doubling the main acoustic instruments, to subtly suggest the sense of emotional detachment felt by the main character. Those synthesizers are heard mostly in the flashback scenes involving making Sun, and it does make us feel unsettled. There's really no harmonic melody in those scenes using the electronic music, which you don't really notice as much as you just feel like something is off-center. That might be the way Macon feels when he thinks back on the night he identified his son in the morgue, or just thinking about his son when he was alive. We'll talk about those flashbacks a little bit later because I think it's important first to listen to the main theme of the film. Yes, it is. Um, the main theme has three separate parts to it. We have a four-note motif, which is a first thing that we hear, and it's a kind of a ide fix 
a fixed idea, so a musical figure that repeats itself on and on and on. Then we have a syncopated secondary subject, and then we have what we'll call Macon's theme, as it's frequently associated with him, and which is also the melodic centerpiece of the school. These three subjects are used with the same amount of consistency throughout the score and immediately help the audience to get in touch with the characters. The film's main title sequence is probably the best example to see and listen to what we have talked about so far. The opening credits play over scenes of Macon Leary packing his luggage in a hotel room in Atlanta before getting on a plane back home in Baltimore. As we hear Macon's narration from one of his books for business travelers, Williams uses mostly the four-note motif and the secondary subject underneath. No offense to William Hurt, but it's great that we'll hear it now without the narration. And here comes Macon's theme on the piano, heard just as Macon puts one of his books into the suitcase. The piece encapsulates perfectly the overall tone and the style of the score, softly guiding the audience into the film's atmosphere.
And we know what the major emotional plot of the film will be as we see Macon packing up a photograph of a boy we assume is his son at the end of the queue. We don't know the full story yet, but with Megan's theme playing at the end there, we know this boy is very important. Yes, the actual first cue heard in the film after the main title is one of the longest of the entire film, scoring a stretch of almost five minutes. After a dramatic confrontation with Sarah, in which she announces that she wants a divorce from Macon, the music enters softly with a full note motif after which we hear a full presentation of Macon's theme over a piano arpeggio. That rendition of Megan's theme on the piano makes the melody sound extremely familiar to me. For a long time, it sounded like part of another theme he would write a few years later, and I finally placed what it is. It's the theme he would write for a father in Catch Me If You Can, and this is what it sounds like. I might be way off base, and everyone can write to me to say I'm wrong, 
but that's what I hear. Given that both themes are for fathers who have lost their sons in some fashion, it's not too far-fetched. It's not far-fetched at all, Jeff. Actually, there is a distinct and precise similarity between the main theme of accidental tourists and the father's theme from Catch Me If You Can, both in the harmony and in the melodic construction. I think it's a testament of William's own voice and how his musical sensibility responds to similar subjects. And I think in this way, in this sense, there is another similarity, at least in style and color, with another score he he would do a few years later, which is AI, artificial intelligence. So again, back to the theme from Catch Me If You Can, you mentioned before, as in The Accidental Tourist, that theme seems to represent the nostalgia for something lost and the feeling of a broken home. Yeah, so getting back to this long sequence of music in The Accidental Tourist, it takes a moody turn during a phone call with Sarah. And during that phone call, Macon thinks back to the night I talked about earlier when he had to identify his son's body after a random shooting. This is where the electronic music comes in, backed by strings playing a long, sustained note to give us a sense of witnessing a dream or a memory. After that emotionally piercing scene, we are treated to something a bit lighter as Macon takes a work trip to London. Just before this, he meets Muriel, who takes Macon's dog during his travel. The cue scoring Macon's visit to London is a lighter and more serene reading of Macon's theme, a brief but welcome ray of light in the midst of inner turmoil.
When you juxtapose the previous scene in which Macon meets Muriel with the music that accompanies his trip to London, perhaps Williams is saying that Muriel has put a little levity into Macon's life, even if he doesn't really know it yet. Yeah, very good observation, Jeff. Uh, Muriel's joy already breached into Macon's solid armor, we could say, and the music seems to alert us that perhaps something inside the characters is starting to change. Gina Davis's best scene in the movie, other than her introductory scene, is the one in which she brings Macon into her home and leads him to her bedroom. Macon pours out his heart to Muriel about his dead son, and though we might think Muriel is seducing Macon to have sex with her, all she tells Macon is, lie down and sleep. At least for now. I have not read the book, Maurizio, and I don't know if this is how the moment plays out in the novel, but it's wonderfully played out in the film. Yes, Macon's theme delicately accompanies this lovely sequence, which is a sort of love scene stripped of any erotism, as you said, but instead full of empathy, suggesting for the first time a sense of resolution and serenity. I wonder if a lot of people came to this movie to see a reunion of William Hurt and Kathleen Turner after they paired up so well in Body Heat in 1981. If they did, they might have been disappointed since Kathleen Turner is absent for more than half the movie. After more than an hour out of the film, Sarah shows up to the wedding of Macon's sister and his publisher. The liner notes of the CD released by Filmscore Monthly indicate that the music played in the film as Macon and Sarah talk at the wedding was initially considered to be the music for the opening credits. Let's take a listen.
I think I would have liked this playing over the opening credits better. It gives us more of Macon's theme, and it would have been vital to get a better introduction to that theme at the beginning of the film. But I understand why Williams contributed another piece. The opening credits was meant to establish environment more than character. Yes. So Macon's theme would not have done that. Anyway, the liner notes from the CD say there was music written for the wedding scene, but it hasn't been publicly released. Now, maybe if there's another release of the score in a few years, we'll get to hear that music. I think it's an interesting example of how perhaps more than one approach could fit the same scene. In this case, it's not like we are talking about two radically different pieces, but it's more about finding the exact tone the director is looking for. So I too think the original main title would have fit at least as good as the revised version, but sometimes you are not sure until you've seen the scene with the music. And I want to point out one more piece of music that shows Williams's restraint in the score. After some time, Macon has moved in with Muriel and her son. Macon actually is loosening up a bit, but musically, Williams isn't ready to give us happily ever after. That's evident in a scene when Macon is showing Muriel's son, Alexander, how to fix a broken faucet in the kitchen. I suspect that if Williams wanted us to feel real good about this scene, Macon's theme would have been played in the strings to make it romantic and hopeful. Do you agree or disagree with me, Maurizio? Well, I agree absolutely, Jeff. Um, I think this little scene shows us how orchestration in John Williams isn't mere ornamentation, but it sustains and enhances the needs of the drama and its characters while also remaining musically interesting and engaging enough. Those little moments can be the toughest one for the composer, but Williams always seemed to pull it off effortlessly. He wrote tiny little gems like this one in many of his scores. But I think that the film's final sequence is probably the best musical moment of the entire score, and in my humble opinion, one of Williams' truly best school sequences of his entire career. Oh boy, that's a big statement, Maurizio. I'm looking forward to hearing about this. <laughs> well, I'll try to do my best. So, after Macon realizes he's finally in love with Muriel and decides to leave Sarah in the hotel room in Paris, this time for real, he walks down the street, struggling with his suitcase because of his back pain. The four-note motif accompanies this life-changing moment when he decides to leave the luggage behind and starts to look for a taxi. The music becomes more dramatic, 
with an urgent variation of Macon's team as he gets into the cab and sees the face of his son in the eyes of a young French boy passing by. The music becomes more and more dramatic with a series of aching variations on Macon's theme as we feel the struggle in his soul. When he asks the cab driver to go back and looks again at the young boy, the music surges again, becoming more and more dramatic as he seems to resolve his issues and find closure with his son's death. When he sees Muriel looking for a cab on the street, he asks the driver to stop in front of her. The music pauses with a high-string tenuto chord, and in a beautiful visual moment, we see Macon revealed through the windshield of the cab. Macon's theme finally explodes fully in the orchestra, as Muriel smiles back to Macon. Finally, a genuine smile appears on Macon's face, 
and the music accompanies the close-up with the final resolution of his theme. Right after that, the end credits launches with a lively, almost jubilant version of Maker's theme that becomes even virtuosic, especially in the flute and the piano parts. It's a wonderful, life-affirming musical depiction of the story's final resolution. Macon is finally back to life, and the music finally sounds alive and cheerful with him. I think this is a moving representation of John Williams' uncanny ability as a musical dramatist and how music can really have a transformative power over what we are seeing in the film. This term, transformative power, is not mine, but it's what composer and conductor David Newman told me when he was guest in my podcast, in which he discussed this specific scene of The Accidental Tourist. The scene goes on a whole different level when we see it with this music, to the point that Macon's final transformation is told exclusively through Williams' music, which gives us the stupendous emotional catharsis that we have. If anyone wants a proof of this, I suggest to watch the final scene with no sound and realize how much its emotional strength is dependent on this music. Oh, absolutely. I've done this a lot with John Williams' scores. I have turned off the sound, watched the film, (laughs) and found out that it's not the same without the music. And until that final sequence, the score was pretty good. And once the music takes that radical shift to complement Macon's transformation, it just goes into another level entirely, one that I think John Williams knew had to happen when he watched the film for the first time. Heck, he he probably had a musical progression of the score already in his head as he was reading the book. Very much so, probably, yes. I think this final cue is what puts the score in a whole different league. And he really loves the theme he wrote for Macon. He adapted it into a five-minute piece for a concert presentation, which he debuted with the Boston Pops during the 1989 season. 
Despite being not one of his most famous works, the composer showed some level of attachment to this school, and sometimes he performed the piece in concert again, even in more recent years. So as I said before, I got to hear that piece conducted by John Williams about 10 years ago, and it plays like a piano concerto. I don't think this concert suite from The Accidental Tourist was ever released commercially, not even on any of the CDs Williams produced with the Boston Pops. And it's a shame because it would have helped increase the exposure for the film. Yes, the piece has never been officially recorded and also the sheet music for orchestra has never been published on Hal Leonard so far. So let's hope it will be rectified soon. But I will say The Accidental Tourist was a big, big hit. It made a lot of money for such a small film, about $36 million in 1988. And to the surprise of probably many people, the film was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. Also nominated was the screenplay and Williams' score. And as I mentioned earlier, Gina Davis won the Oscar for Supporting Actress. The original score nominees that year were very diverse, including the eclectic score for Gorillas in the Mist by Maurice Jarre, George Fenton's Dangerous Liaisons, and Hans Zimmer's music for Rain Man. But it was Dave Grusin's accordion-heavy Mexican waltz for the Milagro Beanful War that took the Oscar that year. And I kind of agree with it. I really actually like listening to that score by Dave Grusin. It's a beautiful score. So we've talked about how quiet and tender and beautiful the score is. But John Williams would put that aside for the most part and return to the Indiana Jones story to finish out what was then supposed to be the end of a trilogy. It's a great score that I just cannot wait to talk about on the next episode for Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Well, Maurizio, thanks again for joining me today. Best of luck this year with the legacy of John Williams's website. Oh, thank you, Jeff, uh, for having me again as your guest. Um, I hope I helped you shedding some lights on this school, which I'm very fond of. Um, I always have a blast talking with you. And please keep up your great work you're doing with your show because it's as important as everything else done to tribute the art and craft of John Williams. So we're going to settle into 1989 for the next three episodes of The Baton, as the maestro had three scores on his plate for that year. 
As I always do, I'm going to remind you that you can post a review of the podcast on iTunes and submit comments on the Podbean app. And as always, I appreciate all the emails I get at jeffswim at aol.com, so please keep them coming. Until next time, the baton is down.